Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're tuned in this morning. I thought it would be interesting to kind of do a broad perspective show this morning on why we believe what we believe. We do a lot of those types of topics on this show, and we discuss a lot of the different evidences for the Christian faith and for belief in God and so forth. And sometimes those evidences, although plentiful, can almost leave you feeling a bit confused about the big picture. So I thought it would be helpful to share an acronym that we came up with that might give you a good perspective on how to put a lot of those different evidences into one short framework, something that's easy to remember. For example, if you were asked to logically support why you believe what you believe, this would be a good and straightforward way to support that. And I think this acronym will help you in discussions that you might have. It might also help you in your own faith as you try to remember if you struggle with doubt or so forth why you believe what you believe. You can quickly recall this acronym and it'll give you some good evidence and some good confidence. And also, if you are not a person of faith, if you don't yet have a relationship with God or so forth, I think that this acronym will kind of summarize a lot of the main reasons that we can put our trust in Christ or some of the main reasons for faith into one easy-to-remember package. So no matter who you are this morning, whatever end of the spectrum you might be on, I think you'll get a lot out of the show, and I hope that you'll really be able to remember some of these key points with this very simple acronym. Now, before I get into discussing the acronym, I kind of wanted to preface that by describing the goal of apologetics. Again, apologetics is a word that comes from the Greek apologia for to give a defense. That's what it literally means. And when we talk about apologetics, we talk about defending a Christian worldview or defending our faith, so to say. And so the goal of this acronym would be to hit two birds with one stone, so to say. We kind of want to do first the evidence for God. And then from there, we want to go to the evidence for the Christian perspective on faith. In other words, the Bible and Jesus in particular. And so there are going to be kind of two different aspects. So we have two different words to our acronym. I'll go through the acronym really quickly. Then we will revisit each different part of the acronym and see what it's all about. So the acronym is BEST FACTS. So two different words, BEST FACTS. And each letter means something. So the B in best stands for the beginning of the universe and the beginning of life. So the beginning. E stands for exactly right for life. S stands for standards and morality. T stands for the truth about Jesus. So those are the first four letters of the first word of this acronym, best. And I think it's a good way of describing why we can be confident in the first place that a God exists from there, we go into some of the evidences for Scripture in the second word of the acronym, which is facts. F stands for foretells the future. A stands for archaeologically accurate. C stands for contradiction-free. T stands for translated correctly. And S in the facts acronym stands for scientific statements. All those we're going to revisit with a lot more detail. But for now, that is the general idea. So going back to the B and the first word, best, of this acronym, B stands for the beginning of the universe and life. Let's start with the beginning of the universe. Modern science 
has been realizing for quite some time, for a few decades now, that this universe began at a very specific time, a finite time ago. There was a beginning to the universe. We know this for a few different reasons. First of all, the second law of thermodynamics states that everything should be going towards entropy. We know that there is not total disorder everywhere. There is order in the universe, and we can conclude from that simple statement that the universe is not eternal. The fact that the universe is not eternal means that the universe had a beginning. We also know that the universe is expanding. This was discovered by Hubble based on a lot of Einstein's calculations and different observations and things like that. And the reality that the Earth is expanding also implies that it had a starting point or it began to expand from a specific point. We've talked about other evidences on this show, like the cosmic microwave background radiation and photographic evidence that goes back 97% of time. That was actually taken by the Hubble telescope, and that is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. You can Google it. It's an interesting picture. But no matter how you look at it, there is a tremendous amount of evidence that conclusively tells us that this universe had a beginning. And a lot of the other theories that people have come up with to try and get out of that, whether it was Einstein's cosmological constant, which he later called the greatest mistake of his career, or if it was the big bang, big crunch kind of cyclic model that people have tried to propose that modern physics is determining is not plausible, or even the multiverse theory proposed by people like Dawkins, which we know from just basic science, we could not by any conceivable method do any kind of scientific analysis on a universe outside of our own, so it takes just as much faith as anything else. Or even Stephen Hawking's imaginary time model of the beginning of the universe, which Geisler and Turk have interestingly dubbed an imaginary theory. No matter how you cut it, these theories fall short, and they come up empty, and science is left with the reality that this universe began a finite time ago. And if the universe had a beginning, that, by definition, is something that the first law of thermodynamics would not allow. There was a supernatural cause to this universe. So when defending your faith or when defending a reason for Christian faith, we can always start with the beginning of the universe. Next, we have the beginning of life. So both of those are in the B and the best word in this acronym. And the beginning of life is very phenomenal because just like the universe had to begin, life had to begin. And we know statistically life coming from non-life or abiogenesis is not possible. Many scientists have recognized this. Even Nobel-winning scientists like Francis Crick have gone on to come up with wild theories, directed panspermia that aliens seeded the Earth with life, things like that. And somehow they recognize the statistical impossibility of life arising on its own on this planet, yet they don't want to get away from the implications of that, that there was a creator. You might have seen the Expelled movie with the interview with Dawkins at the end, where Dawkins actually makes an interesting reference to intelligent design of sorts. I'm not saying that he's an intelligent design proponent. He seemed to affirm this directed panspermia notion, actually using a lot of language that sounded very similar with intelligent design. And I think it's coincidental that he can discuss intelligent aliens seeding this planet with life and then turn around and poke fun at Christians describing an intelligent God. 
doing the same. No matter how you cut it, the beginning of the universe and the beginning of life all point to a supernatural creation of the universe and a supernatural creation of life. So B stands for the beginning of the universe and the beginning of life. E in our acronym stands for exactly right for life. There are over 150 different constants that if they were not exactly the way they are, life could not be supported on this planet. It is what we call the anthropic principle, the concept that this universe and then specifically the earth that we live on were situated in such a way to make it perfectly right for life on every conceivable level. These things were not an accident. These parameters were not just randomly flung into space and flung into existence. But we know conclusively that there was design behind the exact conditions that make this earth that we live on right for life. So E in our acronym is exactly right for life. S in our acronym is standards, morality, and ethics. And this is quite foundational. I was talking with a young man a couple weeks ago, and uh, if you're listening, Ben, it was a great conversation, and he told me that the thing that is driving him towards a perspective that includes God is the fact that he knows that he has a sense of justice that is not just coincidental. We all know right from wrong, and if there is no God or if there is no all-powerful objective moral law giver, somebody that can both give a law and enforce that law, if there is no such person, then all laws fall apart. All standards, morality, and ethics fall apart. And it is a very difficult issue to try and support the idea of morality without the existence of a God. You could say utilitarianism is the answer. The most good for the most people, that's what's right. Interestingly, a friend of mine, Austin Crocus, who I've known for years, I love you, Austin, you're a great friend, is over in Cambodia, where my wife was last year, working with Agape International to rescue young girls from sex slavery. And he and his team were able to rescue a young girl between the ages of six and nine from sex slavery just a couple days ago. Now, a utilitarian would have to admit that 60 Western men raping that young girl a day and finding some kind of morbid pleasure in that, along with her family receiving a payment for that, would be a greater amount of good than her individual suffering. And from a utilitarian perspective, it would be morally okay to continue that. We all know that that is not okay. We all rejoice when we hear of Austin rescuing this young girl from that kind of situation. Utilitarianism doesn't work. Kant would say logic alone gives us a foundation for morality. He basically refers back to the golden rule and says that logic alone will dictate how we act. The problem with that is a lot of different people using logic come up with diametrically opposed positions. Take abortion, for example. A lot of different people trying to use the brains God has given them would come up with very different opinions on a subject like that. So we know that standards and morality, ethics require an objective moral law giver, namely God. No matter how you see that God, the fact is there has to be something or someone greater than us to give and enforce those laws that we all know exist. So morality requires 
a lawgiver that is greater than each of us. Finally, T in the BEST acronym is the truth about Jesus. When we look at the historical evidence for the life of Christ, we are left amazed. There are more references to Christ from the first century than to Tiberius Caesar. And then even his resurrection is well-documented from many different perspectives and historically accurate methods and mechanisms. The truth that Jesus lived on this earth, did miracles, healed people, died, rose again, all those things, all those are historically valid points. And if that is true, then we have to consider the reality that God does exist and that God manifested himself through the man, Jesus Christ, on this earth 2,000 years ago. So the best acronym, again, is B, the beginning of the universe and life. E, exactly right for life, talking about the conditions of this universe. S, standards and morality. And T, the truth about Jesus. I think each of those four points will lead someone to a confident realization that there is a God. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM and KDUR.org online. Thanks for tuning in. We're discussing a short acronym that will help you remember some of the wonderful evidence for why faith in Christ is reasonable and why you can have a confident faith in Christ. We discussed the first word of our two-word acronym, BEST, in the first 15 minutes. And the four letters in that word stood for B, the beginning of the universe and life, E, exactly right for life, S, standards and morality, and T, the truth about Jesus. That led us to a perspective that faith in God is the most plausible deduction. Next, we have several good reasons for trusting the Bible as revelation from God. That is the second word in our acronym, which is facts. F the first letter in this acronym stands for foretells future. A few weeks ago, we talked about messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, prophecy about Jesus that was fulfilled in the person, Jesus Christ. And I shared some of the statistics for anyone fulfilling just even a few of those prophecies, and they were astronomical. And we realized that the fact that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies in such detail was unbelievable. Even a prophecy from Daniel that predicted to the day when he would enter Jerusalem before his crucifixion. Not just about Jesus, though. There are prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that have tremendous detail. A prophecy about Alexander the Great in the book of Daniel. A prophecy about the forming of Israel as a nation in the end days, in the end of the book of Isaiah. We've seen that in the past hundred years. We saw that in 1948. So many different prophecies have been fulfilled in Scripture and continue being fulfilled. And the fact that Scripture foretells the future tells us that Scripture is trustworthy. Next, we have A in the FACTS acronym, and that is archaeologically accurate. The Bible is archaeologically accurate. Historians can go to the cities talked about in the Bible. They can investigate the characters described in the Bible, the events discussed and they find over and over and over again that archaeology always supports what Scripture says. Scripture is archaeologically and historically extremely accurate. Take, for example, just the book of Luke, where 84 statements have been historically corroborated, figures that are mentioned, 
events that are mentioned, and so forth. And that's just one example of how the Bible is archaeologically and historically accurate. The Bible is contradiction-free. People will always tell me, what about all the contradictions in Scripture? And I tell them, before you say that, recognize those contradictions, quote-unquote, have very good answers. And there are great answers to any contradiction you've ever heard. One that gave me a lot of trouble that I'll share quickly and is easily resolved is the fact that Jesus in Matthew 12:40 said that he would be in the earth or in his grave after dying before his resurrection for three days and three nights. Again, it's interesting that he prophesied his resurrection, something we discussed on the show about messianic prophecies, but that's not the topic today. What was interesting or hard for me about this passage is the fact that he said three days and three nights because we know from the New Testament record that he was not in the tomb three full days and three full nights, but rather it was a portion of three different days. That gave me a lot of trouble until I discovered that that was an idiom used during that time. They would often say three days and three nights referring to a three-day period. This came up in the book of Esther where Esther talked about three days and nights, and then went to the king on the third day. Obviously, there were not three full days and three full nights before she went to the king. She was using the same expression that Jesus was using to describe a three-day period. I was reminded of Romania. I grew up in Romania all my teenage years, and the Romanians would often say unan desile. That means one year of days, so a year of days. And they never meant literally 365 days, but rather about a year's time. So if you were going to be doing a trip next summer, you'd say, desile, a year of days from now, I'll be doing that trip. Again, that was an idiom. It didn't literally mean 365 days, but it was a way of describing a certain phenomenon in that day's language. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. A lot of the contradictions that people allege are in Scripture are easily cleared up, just like that one is. T in our facts acronym is translated correctly. Another big argument against scripture that we always hear is that it's been translated so much that you just can't accept it as valid. It's been translated, translated. Everybody hears the example of the telephone game where whatever was said at the beginning, we don't have any clue what it was at the end. That does not apply to scripture. What we know about scripture is even though it has been translated many times, we actually have the early, early Greek documents and many other early translations of those Greek documents. There are somewhere between five and 6,000 Greek manuscripts. And on top of that, there are about another 19,000 translations from the Greek from those first couple hundred years after Christ. And we can go back to those early documents. And since there is such a large volume of them, if there is a problem, if there is an area where there is an error or a transcription problem or something like that, it is quickly noticed as it is compared with the great body of manuscripts that we have. And in that way, Scripture has been protected over time so that we can know exactly what was originally written. And today's modern translations are translated directly from the best possible documents. So we know exactly what was written, and we can know today that we are reading what was originally written I have a Greek-English interlinear New Testament in my house, and I can look right at the original Greek and right at the word-for-word English translation to see how it came out. You could even do this yourself. Go to studylight.org, studylight.org, and you can read the Bible there, 
and you can click Hebrew or Greek and look at the very original language right in front of you. And so the idea that it's been translated so many times, nobody knows what was originally written, is completely bogus. We can go right back to the original documents and see what was originally written. So that doesn't hold any water. Finally, we've talked about on this show how the Bible makes scientific statements. I am not saying that the Bible is a science textbook. It is not. It is a revelation from God about the spiritual truth of the universe and how each one of us need Jesus Christ as a Savior. It doesn't intend to be, nor does it pass itself off as a science textbook. On the flip side of the coin, though, there are a tremendous number of scientific statements found in Scripture, statements that were far ahead of their time. Statements, for example, like the expansion of the universe. That is described over and over and over in Scripture. Statements like the spherical shape of the earth. Statements like the weight of air, that air has mass. Statements about a nearly textbook definition for radioactive decay for nuclear fission is found in the book of Second Peter. I could go on and on. The point is, there are scientific statements in the Bible that there is no way people of the ancient world could have made. These are yet another evidence of divine revelation. So looking at our acronym, BEST FACTS, we have B, the beginning of the universe and life, E, the fact that this earth is exactly suited for life, S, standards and morality, T, the truth about Jesus. All four of those issues lead us to believe that God must exist. Now, how do we know which revelation truly is from God? Well, the next acronym points us at the Bible. F, in the facts acronym, the Bible foretells the future. A, the Bible is archaeologically accurate. C, the Bible is contradiction-free. T, the Bible is translated correctly. And S, the Bible makes scientific statements that were well ahead of its time. When you look at all these different aspects, I don't think you can help but see that the Bible itself has the very fingerprints of God and that God is, by the very laws of science, by the very laws of philosophy, for example, the law of causality, we can know that God must exist. And I hope that as you think about these simple evidences, you'll be encouraged that your faith is not invalid. Your faith is correct. And your faith in Christ is logically sustainable with solid evidence. Beyond all the evidence, though, what I love about Scripture and what I want to encourage you with today is the fact that Scripture is relevant to where you are right now. The Bible tells us that there is no way you could just do better. I just finished reading The Lotus and the Cross by Ravi Zacharias, which was kind of a fictional or a theoretical discussion between Buddha and Jesus. And it kind of drew out a lot of different differences between these two faiths. And over and over and over, the theme that emerged was the fact that in Buddhism, there's a preoccupation with struggling through our own issues attempting to annihilate ourselves and our desires by struggling through all those issues. And what scripture tells you is you could never struggle enough. You could never do enough good to overcome your bad. I've gone trekking in Nepal. I've talked with a lot of wonderful Hindu people there. And again, there is this fear of the reincarnation cycle, realizing I could never do enough good to get out of this cycle. You even talk to Muslims today. I have many Muslim friends that I love dearly. And 
in the five pillars of Islam and in many different aspects of the Islamic faith, there are so many standards that it leaves you feeling, I could never do enough good on my own. And no matter how you look at it, even if it's an animistic worldview where the trees have spirits and so forth, people try and try and try to appease these different deities and to do something good today to get the rain god to give me rain or whatever. Obviously, this isn't a very common perspective now, but in the past it has been, and it's part of human nature. No matter how you look at it, most religion goes back to this concept of trying to work and trying to earn God's approval. And Jesus comes to us. He comes to you today and says, you know, quit trying so hard. You could never do enough good to earn God's favor. So just receive that as a gift. Receive God's goodness, his gift to you, his love to you as a gift that you can't earn. He says, yes, you are sinful, and I do love you so much. And then he goes and he dies on the cross and he pays for your sins. And he says, all you have to do is receive this free gift. So all the evidence is great, but when you boil it all down, you get to this fundamental realization that on top of all that, what Scripture tells us is experientially relevant. It actually is relevant to you today right where you're at. It is something that you can do. So all this leads us to a point of following Christ and trusting his claims, trusting him as Savior and Lord, and being willing to say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me for my sins. I ask you to come into my life to make me who you want me to be. I put my trust and my faith in you, and I'm asking you to help me follow you. And at that point, the Bible tells us that God really does forgive us, and he comes in to each of our lives. So I hope you enjoyed hearing some of the evidence today again, and I hope you enjoyed the acronym that I shared about how you can be confident in your faith. I'll go through that one more time before we close out the show. Best facts is the acronym. B, the beginning of the universe and life. E, exactly right for life. S, standards, morality, and ethics. T, the truth about Jesus. And in the facts acronym, we have F, foretells the future. A, archaeologically accurate, C, contradiction-free, T, translated correctly, and S, scientific statements. All that wrapped up in relevancy for where you're at right this very moment. I would encourage you to get out a Bible if you have one and check it out today. Read a few chapters and, and let God speak to you through it. Or get online. There are numerous free copies that you can read right online. Like I said earlier, we discussed quite a bit today. It was a broad show where we discussed kind of a lot of different aspects of the evidence that we have for faith and specifically for faith in Christ. So I don't want to leave you with just this broad perspective, but I kind of wanted to give you some ideas where you could go next. If you're interested in researching more or discovering for yourself where the evidence leads, I would encourage you to pick up a few books. I recently finished William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith, and if you like deep thinking, that is the book for you. Check out Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. You can get it online at Amazon. You could also check out I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Geisler and Turek, another phenomenal book that will be a lot more readable maybe than Reasonable Faith, but at the same time extremely substantive, and they'll actually get pretty deep into a lot of the evidence Maybe a little bit more of a mainstream, but nonetheless scientifically and historically and philosophically solid book would be The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. It is a great read, and I'm sure you'll love that as well. 
Those are just three great, great ways to start. So again, check out Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. Check out I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Geisler and Turk. And The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. Before we close out the show, I wanted to invite you to connect. We'll be meeting behind the info desk this week. It is our famous mustache march competition. There will be a ton of pizza and mustache-shaped cookies. It'll be a great time. I hope you'll join us in the Union Building at 730, right behind the info desk in the comfy couch area. Again, we'll be meeting Tuesday night in the Union Building behind the info desk at 730 p.m. I hope you'll join us. I'd also like to invite you to church this morning. Why don't you check out First Baptist? They meet on 3rd Ave. And they are a phenomenal group of believers that are going to accept you no matter where you're at and help you grow in your own spiritual journey. They'll be meeting at 1045 this morning right down on 3rd Ave. You can't miss them. I'm so glad you tuned in this morning. It's been a great show. I hope you got a lot out of it. And as I always encourage you when I close out the show, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope for you today that you'll find the greatest friend, the greatest savior, and the greatest adventure of your life in Jesus, even this very morning. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday. Have a great Sunday.